This is a Podfire production. This podcast may have explicit themes and swearing and may not be suitable for children. The world is full of amazing people and once a week I get the opportunity to interview one of them. My name is Brett McCallum and this is Awesome Humans. Morning all, this is Brett McCallum. I'm your host of Awesome Humans, the podcast that brings together some of the most amazing people on this awesome planet of ours to tell us their stories. Have a few laughs, sometimes tears, but most of all it's all about them who they really are. Welcome to Awesome Humans. Today's Awesome Humans is Gavin McGay. He's a leading practitioner of transformational coaching for individuals seeking to unlock their full potential and live a more fulfilling purpose-driven life. Wow, that's awesome. He has a podcast, he has a book. He's into breathwork, noticing and meditation and prides himself on helping clients create a deeper connection with not only themselves, but also the world around them. I'm very excited about this one, guys. Welcome, Gavin. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Brett. Well, you'd be good at this. You've got your own podcast, so you must know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. It feels pretty comfortable straight (laughs) off, but it is nice to be in someone else's studio. Oh, that's good, mate. Welcome to our studio. And uh, you gave me a nice gift, and I'm very much appreciative, but it's a nice hardcover. I haven't seen a hardcover for years. I like Yeah. It's good to feel it in your hands, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good touchy-feely thing. When uh, when did that get published? Uh, Only the... 15th of May this year. Wow, so, so we're a month in. Yeah, we're a month and in. And I'm, so I'm one of the first? Yeah. Uh, pretty much so, yeah. Oh, that's on the it. first print run anyway. Thank you very much. I'm much appreciated. Um, mate, way I like to start this podcast, we start at the very, very start. So what's your first ever memory? How far back can you go? I could go back to riding my bike up and down the street, uh, my dragster bike, when I was dragster, probably around about... Seven or eight years old. Yeah, at your minor beach on the central coast, around the corner from where I grew up. Oh, I grew up go. at the entrance. Oh, well, there you go. My grandmother was from the entrance. There you go. Well, it's a small world, isn't it? Seventeen Gilbert Street. The entrance. I know Gilbert. I know the, probably know the house. It's not far from the entrance primary school. Yeah, around well, the that's corner. Where my grandmother mother resided. Wow. So, where were you born? I was born Gosford Hospital. Okay, Central Coast. So you're a real Central Coast kid. Central Love it. Coast, yeah, stay down there till we're around about uh, 12, 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. And then dad got a job opportunity up in Townsville. Okay. So we shot up there, but we weren't there for very long. And then we ended up back on at Tweed Heads. Oh, okay. And pretty much from that point on, from sort of 12 onwards, it was, uh, grew up at Tweed until I ended up coming back to um, Sydney to do a apprenticeship with my uncle in panel beating. Wow, we'll get there in a minute. What um, what do you clash yourself as, blue or maroon? Definitely blue. Oh, that's good. I thought we were going to have to end up really early. <laughs> no, well, my, brother in, my brother-in-law is actually, um, he's one of Australia's greatest ever fullbacks, Graham Langlands. Uh, sorry, Graham Eady, um, Wombat Eady from Manly Warringah. My favourite football club. Well, there you go. Oh, we're going to get on really well. Yeah. <laughs> How's he related to you? Uh, married to my sister. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, Graham Eady's brother-in-law in-house. Yeah. That's excellent. So what's the best ever uh, Gavin McGay story? What's the one you go to? Someone says, tell me a story. What's your story? About you. Something you've done. I I would say that the the best ever story about me would be being able to change my beliefs and change the person I was into the person that I have become. That's pretty cool. Um, and that that's the, that's the greatest story I hold in me about me. 
And how that did that happen? Did you do that or who did that? Well, it was a combination of things. It was a combination of growing up, um, trying to identify who, who I was, what I was doing, what I was about, uh, getting stuck in a world of, well, uh, what I, I could look back on now and go was just a world of make-believe, um, looking to, to better myself in every way, looking to have more in my life, but looking for those things to, to create peace and happiness within, which ultimately they don't. Um, being led along by your ego as being le- instead of being led by what your true purpose is or what your true calling is. So allowing the ego to get in the way and basically steer the ship to every port that it's not meant to go to. I like it. I like it a lot. So and and that's that's fairly deep and it's a that's good. It's a story like that I deep. can sit here and and talk about because it's if I can help one person in one way, like the whole purpose behind the little book of noticing and and my wellness brand is. Uh, we have a catchphrase in, in my little business, which is we never set out to be world famous. We set out to make a world famous difference. So like it. If, if we can make a world famous difference in the life of every person that we connect with, we're, we're fulfilling our purpose. Um, and that can bring about some transformational change in the people that we connect with. And that could lead them to find just that little bit of inner peace that they might be um, just just needing in their life or needing at that point. And once they go in search of a little bit more, it might lead them to going a little bit deeper. And when you go a little bit deeper, you start to peel back the layers. And then ultimately you can say, as you're peeling back the layers, you're going to find that the ego is trying to stop you doing that. So you'd learn to flick the ego off your left shoulder and say, I can see you there, but you're not (laughs) welcome. So you're trying to get me again. So it's time for you to go. So you just give them a gentle little flick. And, And that's a big part of, being able to live in presence and live where you are and be where you are right at that moment. So what you've just said is my life four years ago. Yeah, I, I've, I've found myself, if you want to call it that, uh, probably no, actually probably five years ago now, uh, but I had the help of a, a wonderful psychologist that helped me get to that point. Is that who helped you or how did you, how did you make that happen or who, who helped you make that happen? Right, that can go way back to... I picked up a book at, uh, I used to do a lot of travel for work, and I picked up a book, I'd always go into the bookstores at the airport, and I'd have a look around, and I picked up this book called Fish, and it was an inspirational story about this transformational change that had happened in this Pike Place fish market in Seattle in America, Mm -hmm. and I got intrigued by that, and I, I read through the book, it was a very, very short read, and I read about their cultural shift and their cultural change, it was a a fish market that was run by a dictator by the name of John Yokohama. And he was just this bombastic, you know, hard boss that used to drive these guys. They'd work 12-hour shifts in this fish market in like minus 10, minus 20 degrees. And his business was going broke. And his wife said to him, I've got a friend that's, and her husband is a, business coach and consultant but he has some alternate methods towards coaching and she said why don't you get him in and he said i don't need that type of guy blah 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 blah. (laughs) but eventually he he she did uh he did get him in and he got in a guy by the name of jim burquist and jim just set down all the guys and 
he started talking to them. Now, you've got to imagine these guys working in a fish market. Mm, yeah. You know, smokers and drinkers. Men's and men. Men's men and whatever. <laughs> and he's yeah. got them in a, in a room and Jim just comes across from this point of just, here am I, I'm just, I'm just Jim. And he starts unpacking some things in them and, and what he unpacked in them, he said, well, well, what do you want Pike Place Fish to look like? You know, what's, if you could have a vision for Pike Place Fish, what would it look like? And one of the fishmongers got up and said, well, uh, I, I reckon we'd be world famous, world famous Pike Place Fish. And he said, righto, well, let's unpack that. Well, what does world famous Pike Place Fish look like and how do they act and what do they do and what takes place? And so he engaged the guys from that way. And as he was able to shift their beliefs in themselves and they were starting to live in the vision of being the world-famous Pike Place fish, they then stepped into that in everything that they did every day and everything that they did in interacting with their customers, everything that they did interacting with themselves as a team and supporting each other. And they became the most profitable fish market in America by square footage um, within about a three to four year turnaround. Wow. And they became world famous Pike Place fish and they did not send, spend one cent on marketing. It's just a complete change of attitude. Yeah. So it was a cultural shift and it was a beliefs shift. So when these guys started to have that belief and they started to look inside themselves to find out who started peeling back the layers on mm -hmm. themselves, they started to then have a different outlook on what was possible in life what was possible for each one of them as an authentic human being. Love it. So I went over there and did his two-day workshop. Did you go to Pike Place Fish? Yeah, I you went did? and did Jim's workshop. Which did you go into the fish shop, though? We actually worked with the fishmongers. Oh, there you go. Awesome. At 6 o'clock on this, the morning of the second morning. Love that. Helping them prepare the market. And that was a pretty awesome experience. Yeah, it would have been. So we ended up at six o'clock in the morning throwing around these huge Atlantic salmons <laughs> across the counter because that's what they were famous for. They would throw these fish across the, across the counter and a guy would catch it and yeah. pack it and people would just stand there in awe watching like what show. was going on. It was like a show. Yeah. But the, the beautiful part about that, and, and I didn't get what Jim's teachings were all about, at the end of the first day I was like, what am I doing here? This, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't get this, but... Halfway through the second day, the penny dropped. And I went, mm, I got it. I got this now. See, we didn't, we didn't have workbooks and we didn't have folders. We had some, a few bits of loose A4 paper with some words on it and stuff. And, and then Jim just took us through these different exercises that we did. And, and by the end of the second day, I went, wow, I, I've, I've got this. So that's kicked me off on that journey of, I learned what was called his program, which was the technology of being. Yeah. And it was probably, you know, when you, some things happen, but they, they, they just might be a, a little bit ahead of their time. And that was probably what happened with that. It was just a little bit ahead of its time, but it was so goddamn powerful. Well, now being in those places of presence and mindfulness and spirituality and well-being, well, that's now almost mainstream. So it's, it's interesting it's, how the world changes, isn't it? Yeah. And I find it interesting that, like, that one guy, I don't know how many were in the course, but he's touched those people in a certain way that it's kicked in years later. Yeah. So <clears throat> we can actually make a change to this planet. We can make a change to all these people. Now, may, we may not see it for a little while. It'll happen. Yeah, it'll happen. For it, sure. It'll, yeah, it'll, somewhere along the way, it'll find its place where it needs to slot in. 
Love it. Okay, let's go back to the start. You were born in Gosford Hospital. Yeah. Yeah, what was the first school you went to? That would have been your minor primary school. You, do you remember it at all? Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember what type of kid you were? Were you good? Were you bad? Were you naughty? I think I was a pretty good kid. I, I, I think pretty quiet kid. I uh, had my, my older brother. He used to uh, knock me around a little bit, but mm-hmm. that's what brothers do. Yeah, I had the same. Two slightly younger sisters. and um, So, you know, it was a brother-sister rivalry there. But, <laughs> um, uh, so I, I don't remember a huge amount about that. I can remember things like, you know, riding my bike around. and Remember the house and, and uh, all that sort I of stuff? I can remember the house. Yeah. Because the house was, it was a bit of a story behind the house. The house was, we were living in number 96 McAvoy Avenue. Okay. And there was a television show on at that time called Number 96. Number 96, yeah, a little bit different to your place. A little bit different <laughs> to my place. Like we were taking our clothes off in, in, in Number 96 a little bit differently to how they were taking exactly, clothes yeah, off yeah. on the television show. You wouldn't be allowed those shows these days, would you? <laughs> so that's how I remember That's how you remember that. That's funny. And what mum and dad do? Dad worked on uh, PMG, Postmasters General. Okay. Um, and he, he started off his career... Uh, working in Sydney in, in a place what used to be called Better Brakes. Mm-hmm. So doing mechanical and brake work. And, and then he ended up on working for the PMG. And um, mum was the stay-at-home mum, raising four kids and just doing the best Big she job. could. Yep. And it was some really difficult times because mum suffered a really horrendous car accident when she was uh, 17. Oh, wow. Got uh, they. The, this and this accident happened at the entrance as well, and um, riding down Marine Parade at the entrance, and Yahoo and car hits telegraph pole. Mum gets thrown out of the car. She had multiple broken bones everywhere, um, big big chunks taken out of her, and and we I can remember doing trips up and down to Sydney with Dad um, for all the different operations that she had to endure. Yeah. Most all the way through her life, um, and, and she still carries pain from that now. She's still alive at, at uh, 81. And so I remember the, the road from the central coast yeah. to Sydney back, back in the then day, was, up through the big um, it, it Pass Mount Penang yeah, and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, it was a windy road. Yeah, it, it was, was. Yeah, it was a slow trip. A good three hour trip, um, wasn't it? Back so in the day, I was, you know, I could remember we were just put in the car and we, and sometimes I think. What doing where are we and then next minute boom we're at hospital and mum's in we're visiting mum after yeah. recovering from another operation and and that uh, she suffered a lot from you know uh, depression and anxiety and mm-hmm. um and uh, so dad's role was you know s- supporting us supporting mum mum's role was doing her best to support you know, raising four kids yeah. and dad and uh, and then he'd work two jobs and and he ended up working his way up through Telstra to be um a bit of a problem solver um, and sought after for that role in different regions around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's retired now and um, we're just helping him through early stages of um, uh, dementia and uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's amazing that what people used to do just because they had to and we never knew what troubles they had. We never knew what they were going through. We didn't know that they were suffering any of that sort of stuff, they just got on with it and it was life for us, wasn't it, back in the day? That like was life for us and we, we didn't know anything about it. It's uh, We knew there were 
challenges yeah, or, or mum wasn't well at times but we it's it's only now when you reflect back on it you look at the depth of those challenges and yeah, it's pretty amazing what they got through isn't it that's unbelievable so the age of 12 you move up to townsville there's a big difference between townsville back then and uh and gosford yeah well that was a job opportunity for for dad um so we headed up up there and that for whatever reasons just didn't pan out i don't know what did you go to school up there uh we went to school briefly up there okay um, and then before i knew it we'd come back to tweet heads yeah and we were living at, at tweet for a while and and then that's sort of where we ended up settling. So the formidable years of your life, which is high school, you did in Tweet Heads. Yeah, I did in Tweet Heads. I stuck around till I did up to year nine. Okay, yeah. Uh, ended up getting in a fight at school, peer pressure. Um, you know, I, I can't find my way out of a wet paper bag. Yeah. The, the boys at school, one, one of the guys had knocked off my wetsuit out of the Greenmount Surf Club locker room. And so my mates were challenging me to go and... Get, him out, get, get him. him out the back of the science room and yeah. give him a flogging and, oh, no, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Go on, you can do it, you can do it. So I went and did that and he ended up giving me a flogging. So uh, um, this, this is not what's <laughs> supposed to happen. What's going on here, boys? Did the boys step in and help you, though? Uh, no, because the <laughs> teacher yelled out through the window. He said, hey, you two, knock it off. And as soon as I've looked at him, this, this bucky's gone and bang, he's landed one right on my snores, um, pointed it sideways and... And I jumped on my push bike and rode home. Yeah, just it was just I remember I could hardly breathe. And what did the old man say when you come in? Well, Mum was there. This was just after lunch. And yeah, she's got. Oh my God, Gavin um, jumped in the car straight over to the Tweed Hospital, and and I got operated on that night uh, to try and straighten it out. And I said to Mum and Dad, I'm not going back to school. You know, that's, ever. Yeah, and, um, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> back it up. Know? I'm out. And. Uh, Dad said, that's okay, mate. We, we really? Can, yeah, he said, that's all right. We'll look after you. So they put me on a bus and shipped me down to Sydney to do a panel beating apprenticeship with my um, like pseudo-uncle and yeah. And so I went from surfing on the Gold Coast beaches to um, <laughs> living in this little bedroom out the back of my uncle and auntie's place at West Ride. A little bit different. Um, doing a, all of a sudden going into a dirty panel shop trying to work out how to fix a smash motor car. Wow, that's um, a big change. That was a huge change, I'll tell you. Um, and how long did you last doing that? Oh, about two years. Oh, you did? That's um, well done. I, I thought it was extremely well done. Yeah. And then I thought, <laughs> oh, I've got to go home. So then I came back up home. And So did you get your qualifications? Uh, I finished my qualifications back up here. Yeah. Okay. At a place that used to be at Curic called Border Smash Repairs. So you're a qualified panel beater. Qualified panel beater by trade. And did yeah. you ever actually um, then become a panel beater once you did your trade? Yeah. Like you stayed on doing that? Yeah, stayed on doing that. And I ended up um, going back down to the Central Coast. Mm-hmm. And that's where I ended up buying my um, smash repair shop. Okay. Uh, down at Woi Woi. Yep. Woi Woi Smash Repairs? Uh, no, we, we named it um, D&G because of myself and my partner Don. So we named it D&G Professional Smash Repairs. Oh, there we go. Hey. And that business is still trading today. Wow. Um, so it was, it was, and we, we bought this um, shop and we just turned it around and we had a vision of what we, the type of work we wanted to do and the type of business we wanted to run. And we were in our 20s. Love that. Doing that. And when I, we sold the back shop, the shop back to the person that we bought it off. Wow, that's well done. Um, five years after. And, yeah. and then 
from there I went into managing other collision repair shops. Mm-hmm. And I like how you call them collision repair shops too, not smash repairs. I yeah, like yeah. Well, there's all different labels for a, a body shop around the globe. Yeah, um, we we call them smash repairs here. In in America, they're auto body repair shops, and in yeah, okay. um, uh, in New Zealand, you know, it's it's panel beaters and spray painters. And it's interesting. One thing I've found since our our twenty minutes we've been chatting is you use words to. Like I'm a storyteller. That's what I do for a living. Whether it's sales, whether it's any, we tell stories. You use words that make a difference to what things are. Does that make sense? So yeah. like, so so collision uh, as opposed to smash. And there, and I think you obviously have done this for a long time now. But it just comes naturally. That's just the way, the way it is. And it's actually really intriguing about when when I learnt what you do, um, I can actually see the difference of what he would have been as that original smash repair kid in Sydney. So where did you learn that during this process or was that after the fish book? Um, I, I think it was, yeah, after the, um, well, it probably started to come around after I'd sold my shop and then I started to go in and do uh, relief management in other... So consultancy pretty yeah. much, yeah. So that started off on, and I... I started it with the intent of just being relief management. Mm -hmm. But what I ended up doing is I'd go into a a smash shop, pollution shop for a couple of weeks. The owner would go on holidays. And then I would write up a bit of a report for him. And I'd give that to him at the end of it and say, hey, look, do with this as you wish. Um, But here's some feedback for you. And then they might engage me then to come back in. And help them. Help them turn their business around or improve a few processes. So that led me to then basically um, renaming myself to um, Auto Body Shop Consultants. Now, I, I called it Auto Body Shop Consultants, but there was only one of me. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's okay. But you can be many people. Yeah, that's you not can a be problem. Many people. <laughs> and that led me on a journey then where um, I was consulting to body shops and then I had software in our industry back then was relatively new. Yeah. And... There was a gentleman in Sydney by the name of Terry Flanagan that had invented the um, first um, software for collision repair shops to help them write estimates and do invoices okay. and price up parts. And And Terry rang me and he said, hey, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just you know doing what I'm doing. He said, come down here. He said, I've got a six-week program for you, a six-week little thing I want you to do with me. And I ended up staying with him for six and a half years. Oh, wow. <laughs> so... Uh, I got to then see the the backside of uh, software and uh, IT, and uh, and I was working then with training other collision repair shops how to use the software, and um, I would then go to New Zealand and work with our distributor over there, and uh, we'd go around the country and and present workshops and and training workshops, etc., and then I would do some speaking roles with that, and, and after six and a half years. I ended up saying, "Well, right now it's probably time my fork the road in the the fork in the road had changed, and I I went back to my consultancy, and then we uh, I was working with another guy, and we were utilizing this um, planning and productivity paper based uh, paper based ticketing system that would help plan the work through the workshop. Yep, and that changed businesses overnight." Wow. It, it took them from sort of like being, let's say they were running at 65, 70% efficient. 
and back then you could do that and still be profitable. Yeah. Um, we would take a business within two, three, four weeks from 65, 70% efficient to 105, 110, wow. 130. It depended on their adaption rate yeah, yeah. on how quickly they could adapt just through bringing in um, organisation into the way the work flowed through the business. Okay. And helping them understand what the ROI that they needed was on each of their tradesmen. Because the, y you would get a tradesperson who's a gun, so he wants a top dollar, and you get your best foot soldier who turns up every day, doesn't have a sick day. He might not be the fastest guy in the workshop, but every job he does is perfect. You're not going to get reworks out of him. So everyone's at a different level and everyone's at a different income. So we would teach the business owner how to set the return on investment for the employee so that we knew that once we paid all of the expenses, we would have a, the net profit goal that we were looking for. and But not only that, but the gross profit goal we were looking for yeah. as well. And so we were changing the psyche of, of how the business owner treated the business as a business and looking at it more as the numbers of the business as well. Um, because we, a lot of us... A game changer. Yeah, it was a game changer because we were basically... We, we just love fix and smash cars. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of guys that went into the collision industry were the same thing. Love being able to see a car come, in, yeah, come yeah. in and then go out looking, wow. Brand new, yeah. But when you could s get them to focus on, yes, we've got to look at culture, we've got to look at our financials, and we've got to look at what are the, what are the key drivers of the business so that we, we can then say that we're putting our attention where the attention is needed. So we're not micromanaging something over here that's only going to make a 0.5% difference to the bottom line. We're going to manage this main KPI here that's going to make a 20% difference yeah. to your wh whatever measurement that was. It's really interesting going from like the workshop culture, if you like, the men's men are fixing cars and doing all that sort of stuff, to actually thinking outside the box a lot and then putting in processes and procedures. It must have been a, an interesting experience going into the man's man's garage, and then explaining, hey, guys, we've actually got to look at this completely different than what you've ever been doing. And also, at the same time, if you change your attitude, your mindset, that sort of stuff, you're going to increase this this way. So you were doing some of this stuff before, probably without even realising. Exactly. So I was growing myself in that way mm. just through the experiences that I had within by going into the body shops because I could be at, at each body shop for like two to three weeks straight. And we're making these changes. And you're rattling some feathers there, you know, and, and it's it's sometimes it's getting a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, of course. And even the business owner, you've taken the business owner and from every Monday morning he has 30 cars turning up and every Monday morning he cannot start work on those 30 cars. So you're take, changing his mindset and you're saying, we're not bringing in 30 cars on Monday, we're going to bring in seven. Now you take him from a, a <laughs> car park that is extremely full. Yep. To one that looks empty, but he's making and imagine more money. <laughs> what that's doing to his mind. Oh yeah, he's like, you're one day away from getting fired, um, <laughs> or beaten up, getting or that nose up. broken again. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, until he could feel that the workflow was changing. Yeah, the cars were getting pulled the workshop through, pulled through the workshop, and then he's going, ah, oh, so we've got seven in on Monday. We've got seven in on Tuesday. We've got seven in on Wednesday. We've got five in on Thursday. We've got five in on Friday. But we're putting out six on Monday. 
and six on yeah, Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. So it's not just all in Monday, all out Friday. You're actually yeah. putting some yeah. method to the madness. It's a method there. So instead of um, – and this used to happen in my shop. I, yeah. I could – I could have cars sitting out the front of our workshop and I didn't even know that they were one of ours oh, wow. until I would have a person ring me up and going, oh, I just passed, drove past your shop and you haven't started my car yet. Which one's yours? <laughs> Fellas, get that car in. Just rip a headlight out of it. Make it look like we've done something on it. And then maybe park it again. Just maybe they put a bit of tape around it. Yeah, yeah, do something. Just make it look like we've worked on it. Um, and that was the, the bullshit world that we, we lived in because – we didn't have the methodology to to manage the workflow better. Isn't it interesting? Like you could actually do all this manually, and not wouldn't even have to automate it just to get that processes in in line. Yeah, just through we we had these this these tickets that we they were um, carbonated, so you could write on them, would go through to the next one. Yeah, and we it uh, would identify the hours by task, and then we'd plan it up on this board, and the technicians would walk over it, and go, oh, I got that job there. I've got 4.5 hours to pull it apart and then I've got to repair that one there. I've got three hours to do that. And then down here, Jim's going to paint it and then I'm going to put it back together on Friday. Right. Okay. Thanks, boss. Yeah. And because the, they understand and know now what they've got on for the week, they can sit there, oh, I can have a smoke out this time or I can do this or I can do that. Makes their life easier as well. Well, uh, and, and I wrote a book on that. This is my second book. But the first bo- book I wrote, which I released in uh, 2021, was uh, – for my industry called Know Your Numbers. It's the heartbeat of your business. Mm-hmm. And I that was a 10-chapter book on debunking 10 myths around profitability in the collision repair, sh- repair industry. And I used case studies from my clients um, that still use my software now because I, I also have a software company yeah. um, that still use my software in what was happening in their business, what did they change about their business, and what result they got from that change. Love it. Um, because it's no use me trying to tell someone you're better off to hear it from people that have done it. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So this during this six and a half years, you're you're in Sydney with your mate and doing the software stuff. Are you single? Are you married? How's how's the love life going? Yeah, well, I got married at twenty one. Okay, and how'd you meet her? That was through the family. We okay. met when we were seven. Wow, at your minor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, mum and dad. Uh, it, it was quite interesting that my dad. Um, was the best man at, at my uh, first wife, Sharon's um, mum's marriage. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it was, uh, so I'd, I'd known uh, Sharon for since we were seven, so we were little kids knocking around. And, and then as we grew up, you know, the matchmakers were make, making oh, their I'm way. Oh, sure they were, yeah. Uh, on, the unarranged yeah, marriages. Yeah, yeah, the unarranged <laughs> marriage, yeah. <laughs> Australian Indian style, exactly, style. yeah. But uh, and then then we ended up getting married, and that's what uh, took me back to the Central Coast, and uh, and we had uh, two kids, and I've got a thirty-seven year old son and a thirty-one-year-old daughter. Yeah, um, and uh, we separated after thirty-two years of marriage. Wow, um, and. You know, that, that was, you, know, you go through all your ups and downs, your trials and tribulations, and you give yourself an uppercut for some of the shit things that you did through that marriage. 100%, and, um, yeah. You know, if I could have that time back over, know what I, knowing what I know about myself now. It's interesting, you know, isn't it? You'd be a different uh, person. And, and same for, for um, Sharon. Uh, we, we still get along. We, we get along great. I, yeah. I help her wherever I can. Um, you got kids you know, We've still got kids. We've got <laughs> we kids, got family still. Yeah, yeah. So, 
So you want to keep that respectful and you want to try and uh, help out. And of course. Just, just still be there for each other knowing that we had what we had. Well, the thing is you've gone through so much for 32 years, good, bad, ugly. It doesn't matter. You're still together during the time you do it. So you've got those life experiences and that shared part of your life. You can't get that back. So, and and embrace for what it was or what it is or how it is. And it's uh, so when you made the cha- biggest changes in your life, was that still when you were with Sharon or post? A bit of both because I've always had that entrepreneurial sort of part of me in me. So yep. I've, I've always been that risk taker. Um, so I would ha- come up with something that, and, and she would see it as a risk, and I'd see it as a no, it's a sure thing for sure yeah. until the risk. 100%. Then it doesn't over. work. And she goes, fucking dodge, though. <laughs> I agree. So uh, the, old, the old gut feel comes back in and kicks you in the backside. Um, so uh, so there was that side of things going on. and uh, But we had an amazing time throughout our 32 years and raising our kids, and then we ended up moving back up here to um, to Tweed. And at that time, uh, our son was heavily into wakeboarding. So we, we came up and got a spot on the Tweed River and that helped nice. him with his training. And yep. uh, he was overseas doing um, events and getting trained and, and always coming home. And, and, and water skiing's been our background since I can remember. Yeah, uh, My um, father-in-law was a champion barefoot water skier and he taught us to ski and to barefoot and and you wouldn't believe that the boat, that the family ski boat that I asked my wife to marry me in, yeah, um, I still have. Wow! And and it's and a, it still goes well. An historic boat. Yeah, I'm, I'm just restoring it at the moment. Actually, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. So, the girl you met when she was seven, yeah, and then you got married at twenty-one. Twenty-one. So when did you just get together during that period? Um, it was on and off, sort of. If I, if I was up here at Tweed, and then we'd I'd go back down and and visit, and, and then they'd come up here for family yeah, visits, okay. and then and then when I ended up going to Sydney to do my apprenticeship, because I was doing in Sydney, I'd jump on the train and then go up and spend the weekends up at their place on at um, Edelong. Yeah, okay. And we'd go water skiing and do whatever, and and then you know she'd have a boyfriend, and I'd go, oh, well, so what? And I'd, I'd go <laughs> off and then. I'd ended up back at Tweed and then all of a sudden I ended up back down there and then we were out in the ski boat one day and I said, oh, we've got to go to my cousin's uh, wedding, cousin Tracy's wedding. And I said, and, and then we should get married. I didn't, so I didn't even ask her. I just <laughs> basically told her. Well, maybe I should have asked her. I might have given her the option. <laughs> and then she obviously went, all right then. Yeah, all right then. All right. Oh, I love and, it. And uh, that's, that's how that all That's the love story. About. Yeah. And your two kids, they uh, yeah, you brought up up here or down there? Um, bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, Olivia's had uh, most of her life up here. She's actually a qualified speech pathologist working at Gold Coast Uni Hospital. Okay. And um, Nathan's moved back down to the Central Coast and he's uh, an electrician. Yeah. Um, so uh, they're on their own journey. Um, uh it's weird when they when the, my kids are just that, that age now. Like I got twenty nineteen sixteen and fourteen, and uh, they're all sort of just starting to grow up, and they're never home, and it's just the two of us at home, and all this. It's just such a different life because you had it before, then you do the kid thing, and then you got it after, and it's just life is uh, life is an interesting journey. Well, that's it's yeah, it's, it's so interesting because 
that's not the end of my children. I've got oh, okay. A third one as well. Yeah. How old's your third one? Two. Two. Well, yeah. congratulations. Yeah. So you got remarried? Uh, not remarried. Just okay. A, a partner, Melissa. Yeah. And how'd you meet Melissa? Um, down at the little village that I live in, mm-hmm. Tombolgum on the Tweed River. Uh, Melissa at that time was helping her sister out that run the local bakery. Yep. And um, and so I would talk to both the girls as we would I'd buy me stuff from the bakery and whatever. And then um, Melissa had separated from her husband and and, and she asked me out one day. And I, yeah, I've still I'd got look, it. I <laughs> turn, turned around because I thought she was talking to someone behind me. Um, but... Uh, and, and look, I didn't know what to expect from that, so I said, mm, "Okay." Yeah. Um, and we've got uh, eighteen years age difference there, and and then all of a sudden, Ari comes along, <laughs> uh, and so this morning already, I've you know, read a couple of books, and I've I've played John Deere tractors, and I've. Um, so you're living your youth. So I'm reliving my youth <laughs> with a. A the two-year-old two in the house. And How did it go when you explained to your other two kids that uh, they're going to have a little brother or sister? That was like... Would have been an interesting it was conversation. extremely interesting conversations. And, mm. and even sharing that news with, with my first wife. Yep. That was... You know, <laughs> that, that was... Uh, out of respect to them all, I, I wanted to sit down and talk to them Yep, personally about of course. it, and say, look, this this was not intended. This has just happened, and um, the the thing is, I'm I'm responsible here, and and Melissa and I are having a child, and we just have to we're we're going to deal with this this whole process. Yeah, and, and however way that you need to process that, I know you need to unpack that yourself, and. We're all unpacking it for all different <laughs> reasons, and um, but you can turn around and you can see it as a blessing as well for you know, this this little fellow's chosen us to uh, as his parents, and and I learn from him every day. Yeah, of course. And, and it's another reason for the book. It because parenting at at fifty nine it was way different to parenting at <laughs> twenty three. Sure it was. Parenting at 23, I was still being parented. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, you're oh, still growing up, trying yeah. to work out what's going on. 23, like, God, yeah, blokes were just lost, you know, mm. like like we're sh- sheep running around the paddock and we don't even know how to open the gate. Yeah, um, very true. And so this time around, it's a way different experience. And it's quite interesting that Ari can have time with um, his niece, Addison, who is one year older than him. <laughs> I love that too. And as they get older, you know, he's going to make her call him uncle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's and, awesome. And I, I take Ari out um, and, and we'll go to a, a coffee shop and have a coffee Coffee, and he'll have a little bubba because yeah. they get his little foam and, and people will start talking to me. He goes, you've got the most gorgeous grandson. <laughs> and I'll say, well, is he here? Is <laughs> <laughs> no, so well, what do you mean? So, well, my, my grandson's twelve, and he, that's that's Ari. He's my son. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm so I'm sorry. so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I so love don't apologise for it. it no, exactly. It is. it is exactly. No, that's all. Well, congratulations. Ari's going to live a great life. Yeah, and have uh, nieces and nephews older than him. I love that too. Yeah, that's just that's just awesome. 
yeah, he's he's got um, yeah, the the way he's growing and evolving, and uh, where he's at now, even for two years old, and and the different techniques of parenting that I'm learning. It's a completely different ball game, isn't it? Yeah, conscious parenting they, they, is a term for it, and it is a real term, and and it is a real to become consciously aware of just the environment that you're creating for your children, um, what you're putting into them, uh, the belief system that you, they're starting to to have indoctrinated into them. Uh, that that is so critical at this age to have good awareness about yourself. Because I can say something to Ari now, and, and he's just turned two last week. And I know that, and I might talk to him once about something, just a general conversation. Now, in three weeks' time, he'll say something based on what you said that three weeks ago. And that tells me what their cognitive structure is Mate, like. That, that little brain is literally a sponge. Two years old. It's yeah. unbelievable what can go into that brain. It's coming in and it's just soaking it all up now. So... Um, most important years of their life. Yeah, having that conscious awareness around just being in pure presence with them and learning from them and the way that we speak to them and the way that we engage them. And it, it's believe, it, it's been interesting and it's and people say to me, how do you do it? You know, I say, oh, I could never do that. And I say, well, I'm, I'm in it and I'm doing it because I have a responsibility. And It's the best thing for the here. kid. And it's, <laughs> Which and is all yeah. that matters, <laughs> and, and for me as well, yeah, it helps me reflect back on me and and who am I being as a human being, and how am I showing up every day? So, it, yeah, it's a lot of learning. Uh, it's interesting. My kids did a um, study called Kumon, which is a Korean version or a Japanese version of learning. So what they do there from the age of three, they start Kumon, and by the age of sort of four or five, they know that all their timetables inside out and back to front. And they know how to uh, write and speak. And that's all based around the fact of um, repetitive learning. So my kids used to do it. And so by the time they were in sort of fourth class, they knew all their times tables. And they knew it. So at math, they were really simple because that's all you need. And all that sort of stuff. And everyone's sitting there, how, how does that happen? And it's really interesting that people have the assumption that Asian kids are a lot smarter. It's not it's just what was put in their brain when they were younger. That's the biggest difference about all this is actually the way they learn, the way they're taught, the culture that they live is actually all based around certain patterns and certain ways of living. So from there, it actually makes a massive difference. So that that's so true what you're saying is the way you treat that child is the way they're going to be treated. I, my second book I wrote was kids aren't born to... Kids aren't born assholes, they're taught to become assholes. Mm. And that was all literally based off what they learn and what they do and how they do things. And there's a chapter in that book that turns around and it says, imagine this, you're sitting here... I'm about to jump in and uh, someone else's car, I hit him over the head with a baseball bat. I go down, I get an eight ball of cocaine. I go and snort it off a hooker's leg, all this sort of stuff. And it's like, everyone's reading this book going, what are you talking about? So your kid just played that on Grand Theft Auto. Mm-hmm. I 100% guarantee you go home now, your 14-year-old or 12-year-old or 16, however old they are, have just played that on Grand Theft Auto. And now in their brain, that's okay. It's okay to do because I just did it. That's yep. fucked up, mate. Yep. Like, seriously, that is so wrong. Yep. And the fact is what you do to these kids and the way you teach these kids is unbelievable. And the fact that you are so aware of it, I fucking love it. Yeah. <laughs> that's my rant for the and day. And but and <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a true rant as well because yeah. it's it's the, the subconscious programming. It's, it's all this. It's the, pro- it's the operating system and the programs that are in our operating system. Mm-hmm. And they're 
that's the program that's starting to be instilled in them. What you are allowing, what program you're allowing them to have um, be absorbed yes. is what's taking place. Yeah, and we've learned so much about this over the, uh, especially me over the, the, on my. What's his mum think about all this stuff? Oh, she loves it. Yeah, because she's right into it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's probably into it at, at times deeper than than I am, and so we set our boundaries with Ari and we, and we believe that they're they're good boundaries because we're, we're not we're not allowing that um, we're, we're not taking the easy way out <laughs> to put him in front of a device exactly you know and I don't care what any parent says about this I'm going to just say it to you uh, we are not taking the easy way out by putting him in front of a device we morning television not on we engage with him Do you know what you're doing you're actually parenting yeah, which is so great to hear. It's and and you're putting in rules now, like people say to me, "Your kids are so lovely; they say hello to us every time." Because that's the rules. <laughs> it's, it's that yeah. simple. They don't sit on an iPad at dinner because they're not allowed one, and they say, "Well, how do you stop them doing that?" Say so, say no. Yeah, it's really simple. Like this this stuff you're teaching him now at two will make him a massively better human being. Yeah, I and mean, we don't we don't and we. We'll have times there when he's feeling frustrated and wants something. And if we do watch any television, it's either um, YouTube and we're watching things around real experiences like um, kids on farms and um, tractors and uh, stuff that gets him engaged at that level. <laughs> and we watch for things that um, – and that because a lot of the marketing and stuff for children is all hooks – yeah, hooks. that's all it is. It's all a hook to just get them into a repetitive cycle. Mm -hmm. Boom, 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 boom. So we look for, say, well, we want to straighten out the hooks and we want to say no. And so now when we have him engaged in stuff, he'll come up to me and he'll say, even this last week, John Deere? John Deere? <laughs> John Deere TV? John Deere TV? Love it. And, okay, mate, we know we watch... Um, TV just before we have some dinner, we're going to have some TV so we can watch a bit of John Deere, and I'll and I'll sit with him and we'll watch a bit. We'll find something on YouTube and watch a bit of John Deere TV, John Deere tractors, and then Play School. We've been going. He's watching Play School episodes that on YouTube from two thousand and five. Wow! Um, and he'll come up, Dad, Daddy, Play School, so we can watch a bit of Play School. And they're talking about cutting out shapes out of cardboard That's and <laughs> making things and. Next different. minute, you know, he's in the spare room, in the craft room, and they're there cutting things out and making things. But it's it, that's conscious parenting. Yeah, 100%. Um, so uh, if there's any parents out there, younger ones out there, that, that really aren't quite getting what conscious parenting is, it is being consciously aware of the, env the environment that you're placing your children into but not only that, the way that you're interacting with the child <laughs> as well. I love um, it. And, and, and this teaches me as well. Yeah. Uh, but for him, I know that even through the work that I do in my wellness side of things, wi within the next two years, he's going to be doing morning breath work with me. He's probably going to be sitting in a place where we go off grounding, take our shoes off and run across the paddock. And, mm -hmm. and these, there's so much science-based evidence that's coming in now around... Um, these holistic um, healing modalities, yeah, for sure, and the the benefit to us. So uh, he's going to be not indoctrinated because we're not going to do that to him, but we're just going to 
bring him into our world. It's not a cult. Yeah, it's not <laughs> it's a cult. It's just the way I live. That's, that's it's the way I live. It? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Now my, it's really funny because my wife, I've been married now 28 years, and uh, she's always been very spiritual. She's always been – when we don't go to church or any of that sort of stuff, and I've never believed any of that, but she's always there's, – there's, there's a greater being. She calls it the universe, yeah? And um, even to the point where my kids actually used to solely get treated with homeopathy. Um, and I remember we came back to Australia. I lived in England for a while, and uh, my daughter got taken to the doctors at the age of four. And the doctor goes, oh, have you got the records? And she goes, what do you mean? And she goes, she's never seen a doctor. And the doctor's gone, how's that work? And she said, well, I've treated a homeopath with homeopathy, and she's never been that sick. I had to take them to a doctor. And he was like astounded. You're such a bad mother. And it's like, how, don't call my wife a bad mother for starters. She's done an amazing job. But the big difference is, is because that's the way they were brought up. Yeah, they sit there and they breathe, they do all that sort of stuff, but at the same time is that they don't get on those TV shows or whatever that actually get, you called them the hooks earlier, because they don't know any different. Yeah. People say, oh, you're such a bad parent because you don't let your kid have an iPad at the table. Who's the bad parent? Seriously, exactly right. open your fucking eyes. Yeah. It, it just winds me up so bad, some of this shit. Yeah. But the big thing here is that you talk about the wellness product and the wellness journey and that sort of stuff how the hell does a panel beater from the central coast become a wellness person how did that happen yeah it's um that's something that david Meltzer asked me on on um, when i did an interview on his tv show um last year he said how does a collision repair expert uh, (laughs) go into a a person of spirituality and wellness yeah and i said well it was an evolutionary journey um for me it was it started way back on when i went to um, Pike Place Fish, I came home and as I said, it was probably a little bit ahead of its time, so I strayed off it a bit um, at that point and, and then I've ended up coming full circle on it. And, and it, it's just something that's, that's grown in me, uh, especially over the last probably decade, I, I would imagine it's, it's become just stronger and stronger and stronger. And, and then after going through a, a divorce at, uh, after 32 years, um, I, I was at that breakdown point from there and it was and I've been through a mental breakdown I know what it's like to have depression I suffered depression and anxiety because it obviously uh, was something that um, whether we, I you believe it or not but was um, generationally passed down 100%. through trauma through yeah, my mum definitely um, and my mum so I suffered that I used to go into these deep dark holes and I didn't know how long I was going to be in them yeah. and I, I didn't know what that was there was no help for it there was no you know mental health back then was nah. a straight jacket and you're getting electrocuted exactly yeah, yeah so if if you were one of them you was there was or toughen up princess you know yeah, yeah. or toughen up you know what the wrong oh, get a snap out of it yeah. will you you know that's a common line or oh, what's wrong with you snap out of it anyone that suffered mental health and depression and anxiety it's not something that you that we know you you can snap out of it's something that it, it's something there's something going on and and so I hit rock bottom and then I worked out, well, I'm the only one that's responsible for me and I'm the only one that can get me off rock bottom. Yeah. So I started doing more work on myself and more work on myself and more work on myself. And, and I had to make that decision after my divorce to go, well, who am I and what do I, uh, how do I want to show up and, and, and how do I want to live and what's living look and feel like for me. So that kept and you did it on your own, or did you have help? 
had a little bit of me- um, mentorship and a little bit of help. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't have a great deal of help around um, like psychologists and yep. that regard. Um, but I did have people that um, I, I had one psychologist, uh, John Barter, um, from down our way that was um, he's a a Buddha. He's, he'd spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in in um, Asia in in um, being a, a Buddhist monk, and he was really good to talk to because he he just talked from a different perspective, and the way that he resonated with me was right down the path that I wanted to go or felt that I was being called to. Yeah. It's it's more something of a calling feeling. Uh, I don't want to live in this shell. This uh, this shell needs to be discarded. It was like a snake skin that you just need to get out of. And so I just kept doing more and more work and uh, people would sort of not know. They would, they'd know that something was going on, but they weren't quite sure what was changing. And... Uh, and that's the road that it's taken me on, I, and and now it's it's just where I feel totally at peace. So now you're helping others, yeah. Um, you've written two books. Well, one obviously was for the collision repair business, yeah. Uh, and the other one, the one I've got in my hand here, is the little book of noticing. That was one of the things when I um when I wrote your promo, I literally took it off your website. If you didn't notice that, um, and I actually skipped one of the words because I wrote here is. He's into breath, uh, breath work, noticing, and meditation. I didn't put noticing in there in the first time. Now I went back and read it again because I noticed it, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> I need a boom tish after that. Um, but the thing is that um, I found that really interesting, that word. And then obviously now I've looked at this and noticing again. What is it? What's noticing? Is it noticing the things around you or actually um, that sort of stuff? Or how would you explain it in 30 seconds? The best way to explain it is how to bring one change, how one change can create peace into your life, and that is to take everything that you judge and turn it into something that you notice. I like it. That you notice or someone else notices? So basically what you notice. Because with all things happen around, as, and especially if we look at that word judgment. Yep. Everyone goes into judgment mode all the time. Everyone. It's I just ha- something that happens. Mm. So when you go into judgment, you start judging events and situations and what you see and what you hear based on your beliefs, your conditioning, and your stories. And once you put a judgment on something like that, the the minute that you place a judgment on something, you immediately are placing limitations on the other person and the situation. So because you then are trying to attach your story to the judgment that you've made about what you've heard or what you're seeing, etc. So when you can let go of the attachment of that and when you can simply allow the to notice what's taking place, notice the conversation that's happening, notice what's going on around you, and you can say to yourself, what am I noticing about what's taking place right now? What what am I noticing about what I'm hearing? Oh, uh, that's a different perspective. Then you can allow that person to show up for who they are. So you don't become attached to their story. Makes sense. And then from there, you can say, thank you for sharing that with me. Different perspective. Hadn't thought of it like that. And you move on. And that's the biggest thing of this. There's, um, it's really interesting. I, I love, and I'm going to do this first. I love when people dedicate books. Because my first book I dedicated to my family and my kids and all that sort of stuff. Um, and 
there's a special lady in my life who passed away this year, which is very sad. It's actually my wife's auntie, Annie Shirley. Her name was Shirley Widmer. And in the year 2000, uh, or just before, she gave me a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And it changed my life. It changed the way I thought about money, dealt with money, dealt with life really. And so I I always give her a massive shout out that she's changed my life there. Um, A few years ago, I read a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. That once again is another life changer and another book that just taught me that only worry about what you need to worry about. Don't give a fuck about anything else. And it makes massive difference. And one of the things that I learned when I went through my change, if you like, was how to meditate. I hate it, but I love it. And it's one of those things that I still get up every morning. I sit on the side of the bed. I put both feet on the floor. I say a mantra. I don't believe I'm still saying this out loud that I actually say a mantra. And... Um, um, and it's like I can, I will, I'm open to receive. Every morning, say it three times, hop up out of bed. And that's just something I do for me. And not for anyone else. No one even knows. No one, I don't give a shit what anyone thinks. That's just for me. The thing I love when I read dedications in books, yours says, to all my life experiences that have led me to where I am and given me the courage and wisdom to expose my vulnerabilities, big word, for all to feel. Thank you. The interesting part about that is that you've opened up your heart and chucked it into a hardback book, pretty much. I haven't even read it, but I know exactly yeah. what's in this book, yeah? yeah? And the fact that you're now able to share that with people. I used to have a, a saying on the wall of my old office and I said, I want to positively, positively affect one billion people and make one dollar from every single one. Yeah. When I say that to people, a lot of people go, oh, you're just trying to rip people off, you're trying to rip... So no, 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 read it. I just want to positively affect people, yeah, so that they're better for what they are, but still... Me and my family are the most important thing. So by making money, I can actually provide for them, I can do for them, I can do all that sort of stuff. So the big difference with all of this stuff is what, back to the word notice. I'd never yeah. even thought of it till today. Like that's, that's amazing. And the fact that you can take everything from around you and notice it and do something about it if you want to, or as you mentioned a minute ago, that's great. I love your thought pattern on that, but I don't think that, and that's okay too. Yeah. And we can we can notice what a great way to live. Uh, it, it it is it does bring peace into your life because, yeah. and and then it allows you to question yourself and it allows you to unpack some truths about yourself as well, um, because quite often, when we get into that judgment mode, we tend to carry the story, so yes. we carry the story, That's and quite often the, and what we've got to be mindful of if we're passing on that story, but if we don't know the truths of that story. That's when when trouble can hundred percent. It's an interpretation. Yeah, it's an interpretation because the, there's only one place that the truth can be, and that's right here with you and me now. Hundred percent. It can't be anywhere else. Well, they always say, isn't there? There's three sides to a story. There's your version, my version, and the truth. And the truth. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and that's so true. Yeah. <laughs> and and then and that's a little bit of the questioning that I I bring into people at times when we're having conversations, and I might say to them, "Do you know if that's true?" And that can stop the conversation. But every time it will, because they're going to sit there and go, even if it is, they're going to question themselves yeah. about it. They're going to sit there and go, oh, actually, is it? Yeah. Oh, the little man on his shoulder. Yeah, the little man on the shoulder. Well, but how really good is it? It's true or not. So you go, okay, well, really? Is it empowering? Is it, going to, is it uplifting? Is it going to bring any benefit to me? Not really. How good is it when you get rid of the little man off your shoulder? Oh, it's, you, you just live in freedom. But you the just, thing is, he comes back. But that's okay too. 
Well, he's always because you know how to get rid of him. Yes, that's the that's (laughs) you know how to flick him off again. (laughs) That's the whole thing. When you can recognise when the ego is trying to railroad you again, and you can become a witness to what take what's taking place, you can go. Thank you. See you later. And I coach people on that. Yeah, I love it. Acknowledge it because that's the mind. The monk the monkey mind's playing with you, and you want to say, "Hey, that's really good." But you know what? Bugger off. (laughs) (laughs) Time for you to go. It's so true. um, I have uh, self, I'm going to call it self-proclaimed ADHD, ADD, whatever you want to call it. I'm just hyperactive. That's just me. That's who I am. And I embrace that. Um, I used to, everyone used to always say to me, you must focus. You must focus on one thing at a time. My brain doesn't work like that. When I I saw Chris, who who helped me uh, get through everything, he said, just embrace it. Just do what you want to do. Like, who cares what they say or whatever. But just do how you want to work. And one thing he did, we went through, we peeled back the layers like you mentioned earlier. And uh, he taught me how to meditate, how to go into that black space and how to just have nothing around you. And me being someone that is so hypo, to physically do that is so hard. Just from the point of view of because you've got to let everything go and then just be there. So he taught me how to instantly meditate. So I can literally shut my eyes now and just be there. And, yeah. and it's awesome. And the best thing about it, it helped my golf game so much because I can instantly meditate before I hit a shot. The problem is because of my ADHD or whatever it is, I forget. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So I only do it every third or fourth shot because I'm just talking or doing whatever. Instead, But it must be really interesting for someone that does this for a living to actually be able to be in that mindset 24-7 and then teach people and help people get into that mindset because that must be really fulfilling to actually see that golf shot get hit because, you know, that's something I helped him with. Yeah, and, and that's a big part of the breathing because the breathing is you can manage the state of, you can change the state of your nervous system. 100%. And that's how I do it. And so when I talk to people, and, and I might not even mention meditating because to them it's like, oh, I can't mm-hmm. zone out like yeah, that. Yeah. Well, how about if I teach you some breathing techniques, mm-hmm. some really simple breathing techniques that can have you change state in less than two minutes? Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay. How long? Two minutes. Yeah, I could yeah. do that. Yeah. yeah, I could do two minutes. <laughs> so if you can start them off that way and get them to understand what the breathing can do, and then if you can actually, because there's two sides to our um, autonomic nervous system. We've got the fight or flight side, yep. which most people are in most of the day, and then we've got the parasympathetic side, which is our rest and digest, or rest and relax, or mm-hmm. rest and calm, whatever, however you want to um, relate to it. So it's a matter of identifying, well, where am I at? Am I in fight or flight or am I in rest and digest? And that's what the rest and digest is the calming state of, you know, four breaths in, two breaths, uh, six breaths out. And do that for one to two minutes and you'll turn on the parasympathetic. If you want to turn on the fight or flight, you go into full, quick breaths in and out through the mouth and you're starting to change the blood flow in your system and, and you're activating the um, prefrontal cortex and that's when you can go into long breathwork journeys that that we call somatic breathwork journeys that actually enable us to then tap into the subconscious mind and quickly flush out old suppressed emotions locked in trauma and can make change happen really rapidly for quite a lot of people and it's amazing isn't it? especially when we find in men as well because uh, as men we're cr- critters that you know like <laughs> uh, cave dwellers 
We'll we'll come out of the cave, have a look around, (laughs) and then if it looks too scary out there, we'll go back in. No, 100%. And we don't want to talk. A lot of men don't want to talk. And a lot of men don't want to talk to, um, you know, have therapy talk because it's confrontational in front of, with their partner in front of them. But, and, and there is a, a place for therapy talk without a doubt. That's, I'm not qualified in any of that, but I know that some of the changes I've been able to help men through um, and, and women as well through just some deep somatic breathwork journeys has been empowering. But, but the, the key to it comes from finding a daily practice and, yep. and just keeping it consistent. So it's for me, every morning I get up, I do my 15 to 20 minutes of conscious connected breathing um, I then go in and have a warm shower and then I finish my shower every morning with a cold shower. Yep. And and the more that you do cold showers, the your body adaption, you always get the, oh, but that's control. It's, it's about mind control. Uh, so I have a cold shower for two minutes. I count down from 120 down to zero, boom, turn that off. And then I will do my 30 minutes a day of, non-negotiables which are non-negotiables means education what am i listening to am i uh, am i reading a book am i listening to a podcast am i what am i doing that's improving my knowledge base and that could be happening at home it could be happening while i'm um, riding my bike to work or have just what am i doing that's my non-negotiable and then there's the other side of the non-negotiable which is what am i doing for my fitness and my health and my well-being mm-hmm. to manage state that way so you can bring in some nice little routines that can can give you different feelings and and just really set you up to step into your day like for me there's no more it's no morning television um telephones are not allowed in the bedroom uh, they must stay out on the in the kitchen yep. bench Charging, yep. if you've got to set an alarm or anything Set it out there. That way, you've got to get up, get to up, go and turn it off, off, yeah. Alarm off, um, and not touching my phone for the first two hours of a day. Nice, like that. Now, when you can get into that type of rhythm, because as soon as you get up and you're looking for that dopamine hit from your telephone, that's when your day is going to turn, start turning to shit. It's true. So you want to turn that off, and you want to set your day up. So you think about this from a morning te- television perspective, if when people get up and they put it on and they, depending on how long you're up for before you go to work, but quite often if it's on like daytime television, you're going to hear the news probably three times before At least. you go to work. Same so, news, all negative. So it's all programming, isn't it? Mm-hmm. All that's coming in. So what type of news would you prefer to have coming in? You've listened to an inspiring podcast. You've heard a bit of motivation. You've listen to some great music you've um, done a meditation that someone you've either zoned out into nowhere or you've heard someone talking to you subliminally that's just given you a beautiful message or you want to embody yourself with the the other you know rubbish and that's what it is i love it i love it mate. and i think it is definitely a life changer biggest question i got for you is the 16 year old boy that's gone down to do his panel beating apprenticeship did he ever think he'd say prefrontal cortex <laughs> never um, isn't it amazing you look at life then there now and 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 where you are today and 
obviously it's a lifetime ago, but you're now going to get to experience that again with Ari. Oh, for sure. Which is going to be pretty awesome. Yeah. Mate, I could speak to you all day, but I'm going to get in trouble if I stay any longer. <laughs> so I've got some questions that I always like to um, to finish the podcast with. What's your greatest achievement in life? Being a dad. Okay. Yep. Great achievement. People or person who had the most influence on you? Terry Flanagan would be one from my uh, collision repair. Mm-hmm. Jim Bergquist would be another um, from my uh, introducing me to a different side of um, spirituality, etc., and, and wellness. Um, you know, um, I, I would say uh, my wife for thirty-two years, um, Sharon. She you know, was just just an amazing woman, and and still is. And you know, my current partner now, Melissa. That's um, you know, just teach me all different types of new modalities <laughs> of, of um, Love life. Uh, and, and obviously my, my, you know, as I said, being a dad, like just, just, just knowing that uh, I've got my three, three kids and that's top of the, top of the charts for me. Quick fire questions. Favourite food? Uh, corned beef. Really? Yeah. Wow. Corned beef with white sauce back in the day. Favourite song? That would be our oh, friends in low places. I'd say Garth Brooks. Mm-hmm. Good song. Favorite place in the world? I loved uh, Croatia and uh, Cinque Terre in Italy, but there's no better place than the Tweed Coast. <laughs> Love that too. You've got a podcast. What's it called? One hundred breaths. One hundred breaths. You've got two books now. Yeah. Yeah. What's next? I think there's another book inside of me. Mm-hmm. I think from what I've taken, even from this experience with the little book of noticing, because from that I've actually been able to evolve uh, the four principles of the art of noticing. So I really feel that from those four principles, there's there's a there's a whole educational. Um, concept Love around them that I think um, needs to be shared. Love that. Well, Gavin, um, it's been lovely to speak to you. As far as I'm concerned, you're an awesome human. Thank you so much for visiting me today. Thanks very much for having us, Brett. Cheers, buddy. Enjoy. Thanks, mate. Bye for now.